What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Throughout my childhood, a pair of framed family trees hung on an upstairs wall in Grandma and Pa's colonial-style home, white with black shutters, in the wealthy, largely Jewish suburb of Scarsdale, a short commute from New York City. I'd go up to them as a boy and stare at the rows of generations spanning the two sheets of beige paper, feeling a sense of pride. This is where I come from, I'd think. This is who I am. That's Adam Frankel, reading from his memoir, The Survivors, a story of war, inheritance, and healing. Adam's episode, Bubby and Zeta and Grandma and Pa, which dropped during the third season of this podcast, has really stayed with me. This is a special bonus episode of Family Secrets, in which I'm joined by the psychoanalyst Dr. Galit Atlas, author of the international bestseller Emotional Inheritance. Galit and I will be talking about what we can learn about family secrets. From the themes in Adam's story. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Galit, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very honored to be here with you, Danny. As soon as you agreed to talk with me for the show, I pretty much immediately knew which episode I wanted to pick for us to discuss. And that episode is Bubba and Zadie and Grandma and Pa Mm -hmm. by Adam Frankel. And I thought of you because of your absolutely beautiful book, Emotional Inheritance, and the themes and the, the thoughts that you have about the secrets that we keep and the secrets that are kept generationally and their impact on us, you know, sometimes obvious and sometimes hidden. Um, and this this episode mm-hmm. is is full of those themes and, and ideas. And so I'd like to begin by asking you, 
What was the first thing that struck you listening to this episode? I thought that this is, first of all, above all, a beautiful, beautiful episode that takes us in such a delicate way into a therapeutic process and a moving healing process as we listen to Adam telling his story. And he kind of holds our, our hand and takes us with him to experience every stage of this and revelation and, and uh, shocking things that he finds out. And it's a healing process. And of course, of course, it also demonstrates how emotional inheritance looks like. Absolutely. He embodies that. And I was struck when I was listening to it again. It's been years since I've listened to it, and and it was a treat uh, to listen to it again, and almost as if I hadn't recorded it. And I was struck by his describing his childhood early in the episode as great and happy and uneventful. And then we very quickly learn that, like, wait a minute, but his parents divorced and his mother was mentally ill. That was just interesting to me, you know, the ways in which we think about our lives and the narrative of our lives. And the familiar, right? The familiar narrative, there is some, we don't know anything else. This is our life. Right, exactly. Also, I was struck by, you know, because his childhood happens, of course, way before this bombshell revelation that then shapes so much of his adult life and maybe at least consciously, really didn't shape that much of his childhood. It was there somewhere, but, you know, the events of his childhood were more sort of garden variety. Parents get divorced, his mom is troubled, but it's really not until we reach the part in his episode that is the before and after moment. You know, this is such an important thing that you're saying, because to me, what that means is that some of the defenses, and I would even say the emotional inheritance part of the defenses, we can talk about that, how that uh, that defense pa- is passed down from generation to generation, that that defense makes exactly what you're describing, makes this secret so compartmentalized, so dissociated, that life is a... Uh, you know, life is is what it is. Everything else is kept in some uh, isolated place in the family's mind, especially the, his mother's mind and his father too. And so I think that what you're really saying here that is important is really how uh, something about the structure of uh, the defensive structure of the family uh, that we can trace back to the defensive structure, especially on the mother's side, it is related to trauma. And he's talking about that in the episode, right? About the history of Holocaust and the secrets around the Holocaust. And he's describing a family that secret is part of their legacy. And I think that that means that something about that defense works very, very well. That's so interesting. He uses the word absorb. Uh, a number mm-hmm. of times um, in our conversation. And there's a moment where he says that the way in his family was to absorb the secret, whatever the secret was, um, the sense that something was untouchable. You weren't supposed to go there. There was this live wire uh, and then move on. Mm-hmm. 
and it's a family collusion, right? It's collusion that happens in families. I think Adam's story shows us how the legacy of secrets lives in families, how, how living with secrets passes down, right, from one generation to another. And the mechanism of dissociation, we all use dissociation, right? We all use dissociation to some degree to, to survive life, I want to say. But in some families, that, that mechanism is really the, the major mechanism and, and, and is an emotional inheritance. Could you talk a little bit about dissociation? And I'm also wondering whether there's such a thing as healthy dissociation. It's a very good question. And I think we, we, these days we, we really connect dissociation very, very clearly directly to trauma, even though while dissociation is a defense mechanism that is there to, to protect us from horrible experiences. And I'll explain what that means. How does that work? But it's important to say that we're, we're all using that mechanism to some degree. We're all capable of dissociating. Uh, it is something, right? It, it's a mechanism that disconnects the, it's the fragmentation, the ability to compartmentalize, to have, I mean, in, in his story, you could see that it's the ability to ha- even have parallel lives, to keep secrets in a way that is not mixed with the rest of your life because it lives in an isolated capsule. And those are some of the defenses we use to manage uh, the pain of life, but mostly to survive traumatic experiences. Um, And I think it often makes us live a compromised life, but what it means is that we protect our mind from pain. So we help ourselves to not feel or not be fully present. I think the most extreme, extreme version of that is in multiple personality. When you see when people experience really, really, really uh, terrible, especially physical trauma or physical abuse, emotional abuse, what we hear from these patients in the, in the office is that they had to, they see themselves from the outside. They had to disconnect and kind of separate themselves from their body. And that is a very extreme way to survive. So I think it's important to really emphasize the importance, right, the benefits and how important it is to to respect our uh, defense mechanism. As an aside, I'll I'll tell you just so, just to to put it all together, that we can see severe dissociations also in, in other pathologies. It's not only trauma. Uh, we see that in, in sociopathy, in, in psychopaths, you know, that's, it's that mechanism that we could see it's, it has more healthy and important parts and more pathological uh, aspects. So for a, a relatively healthy, you know, worried well person walking around um, and living their lives, not in a, you know, an ex- extreme pathology situation, what path does dissociation take? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Because it is something that I think I and my listeners, we hear it bandied about all the time. It's a, it's a word that's become, you know, used a lot in our culture, um, you know, mm-hmm. being dissociated. I mean, I've used it myself many times. You know, I'll try to explain it in the most simple way uh, the way I experience it, not in an intellectualized way. Because what I relate to, even as a, uh, you know, as a, as a human, I want to say, is the 
the experiences, when, when I face something that is too painful for me, there is a part of me that disconnects. I'm not fully present to it. And I think like, for example, and I talk about it in the book a little bit, when, when I lost my partner, Lou, uh, there was a whole year where my dissociation was much, much, much more intense. Uh, with that means, and my kids used to comment on that, that I, it looks like I'm not fully there. I, I kind of stare at things. I, I don't fully hear things. I don't fully respond quickly to things. There is a part of me that is disconnected. And so, of course, that was a response to a very immediate, uh, for me, a very immediate threat and fear and, and trauma. But I think the, the day-to-day, uh, like the everyday way of experiencing that is in situations that uh, are anxiety-provoking or trigger us in some ways. One of the ways to, to deal with that is to just be a little disconnected. Uh, and it doesn't allow, allow us to fully experience the experiences, the threat. And there, there's a paradox, too, it seems to me, which is that when we're in that state of being dissociated, we don't know that we're, be, that we're doing that. You know, it's not language that we're applying to it. Or when you're checked out, you don't realize you're checked out because you're checked out. Right. It's important, you know, we, in psychoanalysis, we also differentiate it from repression, for example, which is in dissociation, it's, you're checked out, but it's not like you don't remember. Mm-hmm. It's not like you don't know that something happened. If I tell you, and I think that in the office with patients, patients that are highly dissociated, many of them are patients who experience childhood trauma or complex trauma, are becoming dissociated in their, in their everyday life as adults. And that's something to just sometimes know about yourself, to respect, to not necessarily challenge, but to, to acknowledge, to look at it. And I think that people become more and more and more aware. And in my experience as a, you know, as a psychoanalyst, I've seen people that that mechanism shifted, that they're becoming less dissociated. And some of it is uh, the, even the intellectual awareness of, yeah, when something really scary happens to me or when I feel unsafe or when something triggers me, I can become really disconnected. I don't feel, I'm not fully there. And, you know, again, when we think about, there is, there is a whole terminology of repression and, and dissociation, and some of it is the, in the old days. You know, the Freudians used to think that uh, repression is about forgetting something. Uh, I think that even that is not fully true because as a defense against trauma. Uh, even if we go back to the episode, I don't know, I don't think we could say that maybe, as an example, Adam's mother was also, she repressed that. But what that means often is that somebody still could remember that that happened, but take away the meaning of the event. So we, we kind of change the meaning of an event, especially the emotional meaning. And so that's something to look at also when, when we think about secrets. How do we how do we remember those secrets? I think sexual abuse is usually the kind of traumas that we tend to, and what I see at the office is that people can 
uh, talk about it in a mechanical way, but to protect themselves, the feeling is, is, uh, is not there. We'll be right back. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, there's another theme or sort of aspect of um, Bubba and Zadie and Grandma and Pa, which is that this this idea, you know, and I don't want to give too much away about the episode itself because I really hope that listeners will go back if they haven't listened to that episode and and listen to it in light of this conversation because I just think it's a really, really powerful story, as, as, as you said. But there's this aspect of permission to recognize that something is a trauma. And and Adam is so articulate about this. I mean, he makes this discovery, you know, when he's in his 20s, he's 25 years old, and it's really a pretty 
earth-shattering, identity-shattering discovery, and he is reluctant to think of it as trauma. And part of that is, you know, as you say, he comes from, you know, his grandparents on his mother's side were Holocaust survivors, and that's trauma. You know, that's trauma. And genocide is trauma, and gun violence is trauma, and the war that was going on at the time that this discovery happened, you know, in in Iraq was a trauma. And so the idea that, you know, we talk about like big T trauma and little t trauma, but it seems to me that it's a hallmark of any kind of trauma. And, you know, and I, I myself am suspicious of, you know, like easily labeling, you know, I have a hangnail, that's a trauma, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but Adam is so articulate about the way in which he pushed away the idea that this was a trauma because he was skeptical of, of, the, of the very idea. And that minimizing is something that I see a lot. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I think what you're saying is, is super important. I mean, let's start with his family history. And I think everything we were talking about so far is about the legacy of trauma, right? Even the defense mechanism, all the defenses that we're talking about are somehow related to the previous generation's trauma and to what you learn from your ancestors, from your mother, from your grandmother. All of that, we cannot ignore that when you experience something, and I and I have to say, I hear it all the time from people, and I'm sure, I'm sure everybody who listens to that hears that all the time, that there is something about, especially people that grew up with uh, what we call big T trauma or or really really intense trauma, like like persecution, like 9/11, and all of those uh, everything you mentioned, uh, we then anything, nothing else seems like a traumatic event. It all feels, and I think what I see, especially in people who are second generation, is the ambivalence about about defining anything as trauma. Now, I agree with you that there is, these days, there is a real misuse of the word trauma. Everything is trauma. Everything small is trauma. Everything that happens to us. The truth is the definition of trauma is related to something that shakens our our system. And when I talk about system, I mean also the body, of course, because the trauma is directly related to to our body. So we can measure it even in some ways. Uh, I think that what you're talking about is related also to survival guilt. You know, that the second generation of people uh, that had parents who have been traumatized. And I think about even children that had parents who have been abused, uh, who talk about how hard their childhood was, how, how difficult it was, how, how much they didn't have parents or they were uh, emotionally, uh, emotionally or physically abused. They, they feel guilty to experience anything as traumatic, everything. And they feel that they're spoiled, that they're entitled, that they're, uh, you know, that that, that, that what they're going through is not painful comparing to what other people go through, right? And I see that, as, especially in second generation, as part of a larger picture of uh, survivor guilt that is also passed down, by the way, from generation to generation. You see that when the parents, when the grandparents are survivors, the parents have serious survival guilt that passes to their children. 
That's so interesting because in Adam's case, he buries it, his word, he buries it. There was a guest um, in a recent season of this podcast who had a just an absolutely fantastic line about secrets. Um, you know, there's there's so many wonderful quotes about secrets, but this one from this guest was, I thought, extraordinary, which was, when you bury a secret, you bury it alive. <laughs> and so Adam buries the secret. He doesn't tell anyone. He tries to push it away. And he has, a, on the surface of things, a very successful young adult life, right? He's a speechwriter for Barack Obama, you know, during his first presidential campaign. He's running miles every day. He has a girlfriend. He has a group of other young speechwriters who he hangs out with. He tells no one. And one of the things that he says in the episode is, you can only succeed at that for so long. Hmm. Which is, of course, true. And, you know, Danny, I think what, what was so complex uh, for me when I listened to this, what I thought was so really complex is the right word, was the realization that not only something was hidden from Adam, but that in fact, he was the secret, he himself. And I think that's related to what you're saying, because the way I listen to it is that to some degree, when he finds out the secret, it is that moment when he starts talking that he breaks the collusion and changes his role. Uh, from being the secret baby to having a subjective experience and agency. He's turning passive into active. So you, you hear how I, how I listen to it. I listen to everything you're saying about how he buries the secret as alive, as burying himself alive in a sense that he's the secret and he keeps himself as the secret. So he's burying himself. Yeah. That's so powerful. He's not a wanted baby, right? He's not a wanted baby. But mm -hmm. he's, uh, when you listen to that story, it sounds like he's an object that is used to enliven the parents, to create uh, what his biological father calls the mystery and the erotic. And so, therefore, I think that until he claims his voice, his story, until he starts talking, he doesn't have a voice. He doesn't have a subjectivity. He doesn't have a life. He still remains an object. And you see, and to me, what was fascinating and, and moving about this story is that you see the healing process of moving from uh, participating in keeping himself as an object when he doesn't talk to becoming a, a human, to becoming somebody who is who has subjectivity, has a voice, and has a life. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. I mean, there's so many different layers of coming out, you know, of, of emerging from keeping this secret, first keeping it from everyone, then finally, because it can't be contained, because it's so huge, because it really is impacting everything about his life, he finally does tell one person he tells his girlfriend and his girlfriend urges him or his ex-girlfriend because he's trying to win her back because one of the reasons why they break up is because he's not himself he's not he's not 
fully able to be a full-blown human in terms of intimacy and, and love and, and being known. And his girlfriend urges him to go to therapy. And at some point, he talks about multiple therapists over the course of a number of years, wondering with him about how much he needs to reveal. You know, there's, there's something that really frightens him. There's a relationship with his dad who he adores, who he learns is not his biological father, and he doesn't think his father knows. And, I mean, one of the things that was so moving to me is that a decade goes by where he's told people and he's in therapy about it and he's, he's processing it to some degree, but not to the whole degree, because in order to do that, he has to talk to his dad, and he's so afraid to. I mean, I guess I'm wondering about the, you know, the, the role of, I mean, first there's shame, right? First there's confusion, you know, then there's shame. And the, the shame layer starts to largely kind of get dealt with. But then there's this fear that he's just worried that he's going to hurt his father and that he himself is going to be terribly hurt by his father's reaction. And lose his father, right? There is a fear of something is going to fall apart or something is going to happen. You know, when I listened to that part, it was so emotional that I I, I started crying mm -hmm. uh, because I felt like, wow, that's a really profound moment. You have to tell your father, but there is a huge fear and risk that something will change with him and you don't want it to change. And maybe you'll hurt him, maybe you, you will shame him, maybe, right, these are my fantasies that uh, maybe maybe he, he wouldn't love you in the same way. He is so eloquent about it because he talks about, you know, his father is a really big-hearted and kind and wonderful man and he's been a wonderful father and Adam knows that his father will try his damnedest to absorb this, to take it in, to assure him that nothing changes. But Adam says he's afraid that he'll see something, that there'll be some slight, subtle change in the way that his father, a glance or a, his tone of voice or something, and he'll know, no one else will know, but he'll know that it has mattered, that it mattered. And that's not what happens. What happens is beautiful and, and profound. And one thing that he does say after he finally has put down the burden, you know, when we talk about secrets, we talk about the weight of secrets, the burden of secrets, the heaviness of secrets, literally like a, like a weight that we carry. And he, he says in the episode, my only regret is that I hadn't talked to him sooner. It was unnecessary needless heartache for all those years yeah yeah he carried all of that burden alone and 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 all of the fears that we you and i express that what was the fear what did he imagine imagine that is for for a decade all of that is there that those speculations of what would have happened or what would happen if i if my father knows and that's that's a lot to carry yeah. And what does it do to finally put that burden 
lockdown, a place that we go in the episode, is that, I mean, Adam describes, he uses the word groundedness. And, you know, before his discovery, you know, in in all of the years until he was 25 years old, he would have considered himself fairly grounded, but he was actually on shakier ground than he knew because there was this fault line, there was this secret. And then for all those years that he then carried that secret alone, the ground was extremely shaky beneath him. And even when he began to heal and he started to process it and even felt probably to some degree that he was putting it behind him, there was this huge way in which he wasn't doing that yet. There is something there that we learn, and I'm not going to say it uh, right at the end, that really teaches us that, uh, in fact, his ground was pretty solid. And he was right to experience his life as solid. And I I, I wonder what he would say about that uh, interpretation. He was not a wanted baby. But the truth is that it does feel like he had two parents who really were invested in him. And it sounds like especially his father was very solid. And his mother, it sounds like from what he's telling, had more mental health issues and more uh, struggles, uh, which is not necessarily only related to him, but it sounds like obviously that impacted you know, his life. But I would say that it's about the fact that nothing actually changed. You know, after he did the whole process and went back to the beginning, his perception at the end was similar to the perception before he knew that he knew the secret. Do you do you agree with that? I do. And and what keeps on running through my mind is that, and I hope this doesn't sound sort of sentimental and hokey, but um, is that those who love us save us. And he was loved. He was loved by four grandparents who adored him, and by two parents who adored him. And that love, that is the, is the ground, and was real. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a performance, and it wasn't, it wasn't complicated. You know, the story beneath all of it was complicated, but the love was uncomplicated. I really agree with you. I really agree with you. And I think about love in a, in a more multi-layered way. That love is not just the feeling, it's the act. And it's related to the attachment. That something does feel to some degree secure. Yeah. It's the nurturance, which is what allows us to, to, to grow and to, you know, to bloom and to blossom and to become ourselves. And, and Adam says something very, I think, universally true Uh, toward the end of the episode, and I'd I'd love your take on this, which is, he says, I'm not just a product of the family story that I want to be part of. And he says, you know, it's the good, the bad, the ugly, the heroic, the shameful, and that that is extraordinarily empowering. And, you know, I think when we talk about family secrets and we talk about emotional inheritance and, you know, we began this conversation by my asking you, I mean, or offering sort of my take about you know, my childhood was great. You know, that wasn't the whole story. And and yet somehow if we're able to wrap our arms around the whole story and not just the shiny bits, that's when perhaps, you know, when we come to really know ourselves and feel whole. I love that. 
you know, because I think that what you're describing is what allows us to live a fuller and more integrated life where we have everything, you know, we have, they say the full catastrophe <laughs> uh, where we don't have to keep secrets from ourselves, where we don't have to walk around things, that we don't have to disconnect one part of ourselves that bring us back to dissociation and repression and all the defenses, this, the very, 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 uh, you know, rigid defenses we have in order to not feel that live a part of us outside. And so I think what you're describing is really the ability to live a full life that is not compromised and be able to tolerate not only what is good, but also the difficult, the pain, the, the being able to sit with, uh, again, you know, when we said the full catastrophe, it means everything that life offers us without being afraid to fall apart if we find out or if we experience something that is outside of what we can tolerate. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap up. I have so loved exploring all this with you and so appreciate your insights and your mind. And thanks, Galit. Thank you. I love this conversation. And I also really love this episode, Adam's episode. So thank you for inviting me to talk to you. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.